Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell and following the closure of Money Observer at the end of July, I've taken on the new role of Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. For this episode, I'm joined by Tom Bailey, previously staff writer at Money Observer and now ETF Editor at Interactive Investor. Later, I'll be talking to our fund manager guest, Douglas Scott, who is co-manager of the Kames UK Equity Income and Kames Global Equity Income Funds. Then, at the end of the podcast, Theodore Diloff, fund analyst at Interactive Investor, will run through one of the Super 60 fund choices. As ever, we start off with the latest fund news and developments. Tom, I thought we should begin with the Dividend Hero Investment Trusts. In recent weeks, three big names have uh, pledged to increase their dividends. Could you um, tell us a bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so City of London, FNC Investment Trust and Alliance Trust have all recently confirmed dividend increases. In the case of City of London, it confirmed it would pay 19 per share for the financial year ending the 30th of June 2020. So that's a 2.2% increase from the previous year. So that means it's continued its now 54-year streak of increasing payments. The trust also said it would increase its payments for the financial year ending June 2021. Um, so that would mark 55-year increases. Uh, it didn't give any details on the amount yet, um, so we'll have to wait to see for that. Likewise, Alliance Trust said it is on track to deliver a dividend increase of 3% for 2020 which would mark its 54th year consecutively of increases. And similarly, FNC Investment Trust pledged to increase its dividend for the 50th year in a row in 2020. So this is all good news for income investors who rely on these trusts for a steady stream of dividend payments. Despite many of the companies in the trust portfolios cutting or suspending their dividend payments, they've been able to draw on their substantial reserves to increase their payments as they promised to do so. So this is one of the key attractions of investment trusts working as it should. Trusts can hold back some of their payments they generate from the companies they hold in their portfolios to smooth out their dividend payments over time, as is well done. Well, it's certainly uh, good news for income investors, um, particularly with the uh, challenging backdrop at the moment for dividends. But from a total return perspective, it has been challenging for um, for all three of those trusts and indeed any income-focused investment trust or indeed open-ended funds in 2020 so far. Uh, yes, of course, uh, investors have to consider their portfolio from a total returns perspective. And the crisis has been particularly bad for many of the usually dependable income paying stocks. If you look at the kind of scale of dividend cuts, it outpaces anything seen during the say, 2008 crisis and other similar kind of big market downturns. In the case of City of London, this is particularly noticeable. So one of the trust's largest holdings has been Royal Dutch Shell, which due to the collapse in oil prices has seen its share price uh, down by something like 40%. It's one of those unique parts of the, of the crisis uh, compared to before. Obviously, you expect oil to go down in an economic contraction, but the, the scale of the, the collapse in oil prices and then so the outlook for oil companies is kind of unprecedented. Uh, likewise, for City of London, it has a large holding in HSBC. Again, a dependable, good income paying stock usually, but banks struggle in uh, economic contractions like we've seen due to the pandemic. Um, so that's HSBC's share price as well as the the bank finds itself stuck between the growing tensions between China and the US. Moving away from dividends for now, there has been some news for investors in the stricken Woodford Equity Income Fund. It has been announced by the fund's corporate director, Link Fund Solutions, that a third distribution will be made. Although at this stage, it is unclear 
how much money individual investors will receive and indeed the size of the losses. And also the timing of the payment has not yet been spelled out. Those details will become clearer later this month as two letters are going to be sent out to investors. We will, of course, report on any updates at ii.co.uk. So look out for that. Tom, has there been anything else of note in the sort of fund world that has uh, cropped up that we should be talking about this week? There's been more talk of trying to fix the continued problem of open-ended property funds, which have to sometimes close in a tough market environments due to the liquidity mismatch between open-ended funds offering daily redemptions, but obviously taking more than a day to sell property. Uh, there's this kind of idea that there's a liquidity mismatch and it forces funds, open-ended property funds to close. So the FCA has proposed new rules to try and solve this problem. The most notable uh, new rule proposed was require investors to give a notice period of 180 days, so essentially six months before their investment is redeemed. It would go some way in solving this liquidity mismatch, but then you have to ask yourself, who would want to invest in a fund that takes six months to get yourself out of? I totally agree. My view is, which is um, shared by fund analysts at Interactive Investor, is the there's already an alternative good structure for investing in a, in a liquid assets, and that is um, investment trusts. Obviously, due to their structure, they'll never put um, suspensions in place that uh, bar investors from buying or selling. Well, thanks for that, Tom. For the next part of the podcast, I'm joined by Douglas Scott, co-manager of the Kames UK Equity Income and Kames Global Equity Income Funds. Douglas, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a busy and tricky time to be a fund manager investing in income stocks, to say the least, um, in 2020. To start off with, could you run through the way that you invest, qualities you like to see in a business and any red flags that put you off a company? Yeah, certainly. As you said, I am running income money, so clearly focusing on stocks that pay a dividend. We will not hold stocks that don't pay a dividend. might hold a stock that we think will pay a dividend in the future. And we want a stock ideally that yields above the market. Um, so the dividend yield in that stock is greater than that of the market. But that is not set in stone. So we'll own some stocks that yield above the market and some stocks that yield below the market. Another sort of important criteria in there is dividend cover. How well was the dividend covered out of earnings and cash? Because clearly if a company is over-distributing, it means they're more likely to cut the dividend and there's less likely chance they can certainly grow the dividend. And a growing dividend is important. So it's good to see a company that's increasing its cash flow, can de-gear and can grow the dividend. So a growing dividend, all things being equal, is more attractive than one that isn't growing. So we'd rather own a stock that maybe yielded a bit less and grew its dividend than a stock that was a bit higher and wasn't growing its dividend as much. Other sort of key criteria and sort of looking at all this, one is what we call net debt to EBITDA. Now, what do I mean by that is just basically the level of debt in the business relative to the gross cash flow of the company. The higher that number is, the more risky the business is in the sense that if something goes wrong, it's carrying a lot of debt relative to its cash flow. And there can be more to go wrong for you in terms of a shareholder and your equity investment. Now, obviously, some businesses may or well have stable income streams and can high, you know, carry sort of higher levels of that ratio. But typically, around about two and a half times, we start to sort of get concerned. The other thing we want to see are businesses that have good returns in equity, either profitable um, so the returns are growing at least at 10% or return on equities 10% plus. Now, 
Two of the key things I mentioned there when I spoke about this net debt to EBITDA and return on equity, by the time you find out that a company's in problems, paying its dividend, it's usually sort of too late. So we try and look at companies that are able to grow their returns, generate cash, and also de-gear at the same time. So reduce that ratio. If you've got companies where you've got falling profitability, i.e. falling returns in equity, the net debt EBITDA is going up, are you becoming more geared, more leveraged, then there's a good chance further down the line that your dividend is going to get cut because they're not generating as much cash. And within all that, we integrate ESG. And ESG is quite key to the sustainability of a dividend. And it's fair to say the Global Equity Income Fund in particular has become more, um, I would say, ESG-like. Um, I'm not saying it's an ESG fund, it is not... Over the, over the years, clearly, if a, if a business doesn't have sustainability in terms of its products, in terms of supporting the environment and doing the right thing, then your dividend won't be sustainable. But ENS are always the ones that get this sort of focus. But G, to me, is the key. Governance is the key. And when you spoke in your question about sort of red flags, governance, to me, means the people that are running the business and knowing what's going on and accounting properly for what's going on. So in terms of the sort of red flags and things that we'd look out for, um, the key to me would be poor governance. One of the key things where a lot of companies have been caught out on or this market's been caught out in recent years is it's coming back to net debt. When we see that number, we see that number at one point in time, how much debt does business have? One of the questions I will ask companies is, what is the average net debt throughout the year? Because you can manipulate that number at one point at the end of the year. You could offer a discount to your customers to get all the cash in early. You can stop maybe paying suppliers. You can squeeze it. But you really want to know how much debt is sitting in that business on average, not just at one sort of point in time. Other sort of red flags, things like capitalization of costs. What do I mean by that? It's not a bad thing, but... You can capitalise costs and not put them through your P&L, makes your business look more profitable. Now, you might be capitalising costs for the right reasons, and that's fine. But if you're not, and look at concerns, again, another sort of red flag. And once that final thing, and it's not a red flag, but it, it comes back to maybe more sort of uh, the sort of technicals, it's, it's liquidity. And the Global Equity Income Fund, we don't invest in stocks and market caps under $500 million. It's port important as investors that as we grow the size of funds, that liquidity does not suffer in terms of the way we are investing the money. And we've always had that in. So we do not invest in liquid stocks or liquid companies. We're trying to invest so that as money comes in, what we're doing is scalable and the track record has not really been affected by the fact, you know, in the sense that you've just invested in a whole load of small names, managed to generate some high returns. Um, that may well not be sustainable in, in this sort of future. Has the scale of dividend cuts in the UK and globally in response to coronavirus surprised you? Well, the first thing that surprised me was the coronavirus. I'm not a, a sci-fi watcher of movies. I hate sci-fi movies and sci-fi books. But if you had told me I'd be sitting in a room for months and end, would need to go to the supermarket with a mask on, I wouldn't be allowed to go to a pub. And then when I could go to a pub, would have to lift my own pint off a tray because the barman or barmaid wouldn't be allowed to do that. I would have thought, would have, I just couldn't have imagined that. 
so starting on that basis, given that I couldn't imagine the whole event in the first place, um, I didn't see the scale of dividend cuts coming, albeit when it started to unfold and it started to dawn that businesses had to shut and went into lockdown, it became clear that that's what would happen. I think the the good thing in that, and I could put a positive spin on it, is that, you know, at the end of the day, employers, management, landlords, suppliers of businesses have all had to take pain. And I see no difference in shareholders as to why shareholders um, haven't had to take pain. So whilst at fund level, I would have loved to have collected every dividend and everyone to still pay, I think that the action of a lot of management was the right one. I think it was unfortunate in the timing because a lot of them were just at the point about making a decision in dividends and there was an awful lot of uncertainty. And the last thing you wanted to do was pay money out and then ask shareholders for money a few weeks later. You would have looked so stupid. So I think the businesses generally have acted properly in what they've done with regards to dividends. I guess what surprised me a bit more was the regulatory interference. Um, you know, banks have built up balance sheets um, over years so that we don't go through the same issues that we had um, in the sort of credit crunch. And you saw a sort of pressure in insurance companies, again, who have strengthened their balance sheets over a period of years, been leaned upon not to pay. So I'm not sure that we needed the regulatory interference in what was going on. I think if companies were able to pay and they thought it was right to pay, um, then they should pay. I think when there are risks and they wanted to be prudent, it was right not to pay. But I do think it should have been left more up to the companies to decide rather than others who didn't really know what was going on either to tell them what to what to do. And clearly with the COVID corporate finance facility, what do I mean by this? This is a loan the government put out and back in mid-May they put restraint in terms of paying dividends and remuneration to senior management. That has held things back. But I do think that's fair if you're taking money from government that you shouldn't be paying out uh, to dividend in terms of dividends and you certainly shouldn't be paying significant amount of senior management remuneration. But it will wash through um, and things will come back. And some companies that have passed in their interim dividend, we're starting to see now pay the interim and final as we get some clarity that hasn't perhaps been the kind of impact that people thought. And people just generally didn't know what the impact would be. But I mean, the key areas that continue to, to struggle are obviously in travel and leisure for obvious reasons because of ongoing social distancing. Um, so they will be the ones, I think, where dividends will continue to, um, I wouldn't say disappoint, but continue to be scarce, um, certainly in the near term. You seem quite optimistic that um, firms will be returning to the dividend register. Does this hinge heavily on the performance of the wider economy and whether there's a second wave of the virus later this year? Yeah, I mean, all things been equal. Um, the, the strength of stronger economies, a stronger earnings, stronger cash, stronger dividends. I, I don't necessarily like the term second wave because to me the first wave has never disappeared. Um, we never got to a case of zero cases, so it's just been a sort of um, an amplitude that sort of gets smaller. Um, and as we unwind lockdown and we socialise more, um, it's picking up, but that can only be expected. I think it's how we live with it um, is one of the key things. And secondly, when we get a vaccine for this. So I do think that companies in the near term will be more prudent in terms of, of their dividends. They'll be starting to get a little more visibility now in terms of what is going on. Everyone will worry about a second wave, um, to, using your expression, uh, I, a sort of rapid, rapid pickup. 
Um, but if we get to that again, we'll just get more lockdown. But as we know, lockdowns will be more localised. I don't think a lot of businesses will act the way that they acted in the past. They will have to in the travel and leisure industry, although I think some leisure businesses, if they're allowed to stay open this time, or if they can stay open, because some of the food, uh, fast food operators were allowed to stay open and didn't, I think they will make it businesses if they can and um, break cash flow uh, even that they will stay open this time. But to your point, it is a risk. Businesses will still be cautious. We will get more visibility as we go on. But the key thing is really a vaccine. I'm confident we'll get a vaccine. I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm an engineer by training. But I am confident at some point that the 200 companies that are working in this will come up with something and that will provide um, more confidence to, to, to markets, particularly in terms of sort of travel um, and leisure. But if it does all kick off again, we do run, particularly in travel and leisure industry, more equity raises sort of on the cards. A lot of them raised equity before to support their businesses as we went into lockdown and were supported. I think it might be more difficult this time for that to happen. And under, say, a pessimistic scenario of, say, the dividend drought continuing for a prolonged period of time and, um, you know, businesses being very cautious about uh, returning to the dividend register, would that change your investment approach at all? I mean, I think the first thing um, to, to point out is that I, I don't think that dividends will be reinstated at previous levels. So companies, when they start paying dividends again, a lot of them will be at reduced case you know, levels, particularly in the case of banks. So I, I don't think that um, what we're going to see um, is just a return to the level that businesses were, were, were paying before. I expect dividends on average to come back at lower level. I think because of this, the companies will be more prudent and they will either do a special dividend, i.e. an additional dividend on top of their ordinary occasionally, or a share buyback, which is where they sort of buy back equity and reduce the share count, returning cash effectively and getting their the, the earnings up. But I, I don't think that we'll go back to where we were. In many ways, that's a slight positive. What do I mean? that you could argue that in the UK in particular, not, not the global um, equity income stage, but the UK is very concentrated um, around certain sectors, be it in oil, be it in banking or whatever. And I think lower levels of dividends for them, arguable will make the sort of dividend rebase a more solid platform going forward and allow for people to reach their targets from a more sort of diversified base of income which I see as a, as a sort of positive. Banks will remain under pressure because we'll be in an environment of lower bond yields. That will carry on. Governments continue to print money to support the economy, which is one of the reasons that markets have rebounded, you know, so, so sharply. But yeah, to, you, to your point, I think dividends will come back, but not at the level they were. And the structure might be slightly different in the sense that companies won't want to commit to such a big ordinary, but allow a bit of flexibility in the good times for the special and the buyback, and maybe taking that away first um, when times become a bit tough or the outlook becomes a bit tougher. Interesting that you've just uh, noted some potential silver linings to um, to you know dividends going forward. I wanted to um, finish off by asking you given that you run both a UK equity income fund and a global equity income fund, 
Um, how has that been invested, you know, being a fund manager of both of those in this environment? As expected, uh, the Keynes Global Equity Income Fund has managed to limit losses this year much more than the Keynes UK Equity Income Fund. How has it been managing both of those funds? Yes, the UK Equity Income Fund has been weaker than the global one. On the plus side, the UK Equity Income one is about 3 3.5% of peers year to date and consistent sort of in the second quartile over the sort of one to five year period. But the global equity market as a whole um, has been far more robust than that of the UK and you've seen quite a sort of divergence. Um, so global equities certainly um, have outperformed the UK equity market quite significantly, you know, over the over the course of over the course of the year. So in global equity income, for example, our peers are down about nine percent. In UK equity income, they're down about sort of twenty-two percent at the moment. But both of us are ahead of, or, uh, both funds are, are ahead of, of of peers quite quite sort of comfortably. I think the UK has suffered a little bit from the Brexit overhang. I think the UK has suffered a little bit from certainly early on what appeared to be quite a sort of uh, disjointed way in which we were tackling the, the virus. And I think a sort of final point is the UK has suffered from the structure of its stock market, i.e. having quite a few banks and lots of oil names within there and having sort of a bit of sort of regulatory interference, if you like, in the sort of financial sense. So the market overall has been um, maybe not the one that, um, unlike the US, that's got lots of technology, which has been relatively un- unimpacted by all this and arguably has benefited from it in terms of more working from home, more communication, um, etc. Um, so the structure of the UK equity market has not helped. But I do think we're sort of through that now. We've seen the dividend cuts come through. So, you know, before we've seen them in BT, Vodafone, BP, you know, Royal Dutch Shell. So we've worked our way through um, a lot of that. So I'm not sure that on a relative basis we'll see this UK equity market underperform the global equity market the way that it has done. The other thing in the UK equity market, one of the key things really is this currency, because about 75 to 80% of the earnings of the UK market are actually overseas. And the currency has actually rebounded you know, relatively strongly recently. If you go into a slightly weaker patch, ironically, relative to the dollar, we will probably see the UK equity market do sort of, you know, slightly um, better within that. But see, global equity has been better and it has managed to, I wouldn't say we're overweight technology, um, we're not, um, because it's difficult to, to be overweight technology, um, but we have a, a much more of a sort of um, exposure to that certainly than you would do in this sort of UK fund, which has, has helped the global fund quite a bit. Well, thank you very much for your time, Douglas. Some really interesting observations there. For the last part of the podcast, I am joined by Theodore Diloff, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor. Theodore, which Super 60 Fund Investment Trust or ETF have you selected for this episode? Hi, Kyle. For this episode, I picked Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, which was among the most popular investments on Interactive Investors platform in the second quarter of this year. This is Bailey Gifford's flagship investment trust, launched in 1909 and currently has a total assets of around 13 billion, which makes it the UK's largest investment trust and a FTSE 100 company. Managers James Anderson and Tom Slater invest in innovative businesses with the power to disrupt whole sectors and industries. 
Their view is that only a small number of exceptional companies produce exceptional returns. So focuses on finding these future winners by looking for certain attributes, including assessing whether a company has a long-term competitive advantages that sets it apart from its rivals. The managers are happy with exposure to a broad number of companies to start with, then wait patiently until a potential leader is exposed by the market. So for example, they held eBay along with Amazon as they were not certain would dominate the e-commerce world. They also accept the fact that sometimes a company becomes so successful that it's exhausted its opportunities. Good example of which is Apple being sold in 2016. When we drill down into the portfolio, um, where does it invest? The managers invest in their best ideas around the globe, holding around 90 companies for the very long term. They have long been supporters of the technology sector, which accounts for about 20% of the overall portfolio investing in an early stage in Google, uh, Facebook and Amazon, and back in China, Alibaba and Tencent. Currently, the trust's largest holding is Tesla, which has seen incredible growth recently and is one of the top contributors for the trust performance. In terms of geography, more than half of the assets are allocated in North America and around 20% in China. What makes the trust special and stand out from peers? The trust has many qualities that differentiates it from the competition, including well-defined process. And in fact, meeting company management is extremely important for the team. And Bailey Gifford's reputation, as well as James and Tom's track record as long-term shareholders, allows them to build trust-based relationships with industry gurus such as Jeff Bezos and Jack Ma. Year-to-date, the trust returned 56% compared to 16% for the MSCI All Country Growth Index and 1% for the FTSE uh, World Index. And over five years, holders of the trust have enjoyed a total return of 247% compared to 114% for the respective MSCI benchmark. And um, what sort of investors will it particularly suit? The trust provides global exposure to exciting disruptive growth companies selected by highly experienced managers. The strength of their stock picking skills combined with strong risk-adjusted performance and competitive fees uh, makes this a good choice for long-term investors. However, it should be highlighted that this is a high-risk investment due to the nature of the portfolio, exposure to unquoted companies and some gearing. It would work better as a satellite holding in a well-diversified portfolio and its growth style could complement strategies with core or value style features. Thank you for that, Theodore, and thank you to all of the guests that have featured in this podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.